Zach, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Justin. I'm thrilled to be here. I think I've known you for a long time. I swear I've seen you so many times in my life, but you were always, um, at least for many years, just in the room operating a camera uh, and you know, we maybe shook hands or said hello, but it would be Nick Gillespie or someone else interviewing me. But yeah. you seem to be coming to the forefront a little more now. Is that <laughs> is that calculated or is it something that's just evolved naturally over time? Uh, I'd say it's it's evolved naturally. I've always pretty much from the beginning, you know, when I first started at Reason, I was definitely learning the ropes in terms of getting better at editing, running a camera, being in a supportive role. But pretty soon I, I developed an interest in talking to people, interviewing. Um, and so I got on and started interviewing fairly early. Um, for my documentaries, I would uh, usually, you would hear my voice, but I would be off camera. Yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> now I've put myself in it a little bit more because I've, I've developed, you know, being on YouTube, you kind of uh, adapt to your the, the medium there. It has its own, it's its own genre, really. And um, I've developed this kind of like video essay form. And so sometimes me being there in the studio talking to camera can be an effective communications device. So I've kind of leaned into that, whereas before I thought it was better to just stay behind the camera and kind of be the disembodied voice. Um, and then, you know, I would say with my move to Florida, I really kind of, uh, made, you know, I was the character of that video. Uh, and that was kind of like, okay, now I guess I am sometimes going to have to insert myself as, as a character every once in a while. Um, so I never, you know, was seeking to do that necessarily, but uh, sometimes it's just a more effective way to uh, communicate as, as a journalist. When you started out in this work, were you very libertarian or was it more of a job? Like you got into it because you wanted to do video producing and editing and all that. Well, I moved to LA shortly after graduating college. Uh, that's where I got into video. I studied journalism there, uh, but I got really into video production there as well. And uh, then I realized I wanted to work in video, so uh, film and video. So I, I moved out to LA with my, my wife, who, who, well, who would become my wife, uh, who also wanted to work in that industry. And I was just working in kind of the mainstream entertainment industry for a while. But the whole time I, I had been a reader of Reason Magazine um, and I saw that they were launching a digital video channel. And back then, uh, digital was new. Uh, it was called New Media. And I thought it was a really exciting frontier. I've always been interested in how media evolves. Um, and so... I thought that was an exciting opportunity, uh, what they were doing, and I was a fan of Reason. I, ha I was already pretty much a, a libertarian by then, um, and so I applied for the job, and uh, yeah, I was, I was a libertarian then, um, but then uh, Reason was kind enough to allow me to go attend some seminars. One, one of the really formative seminars for me was uh, 
I went and read The Constitution of Liberty by Hayek uh, uh, and got to sit down with the late Steve Horwitz to talk about it. And that really um, got me, was what got me deep into Hayek and kind of, you know, changed the way I saw everything going forward from there. So when you started, would you say you weren't, I guess, a philosophical libertarian? It was more intuitive? Um, like yeah. you, just, you believed in, in freedom generally and you didn't necessarily know about Hayek or you know other uh, great authors or thinkers within the libertarian movement? Yeah, I, I, I've always like been uh, pretty, I guess, interested in, you know, I, I, I was never, yeah, I was never philosophy first. I was about the pragmatic elements first. You know, that's why journalism attracted me because I, I like seeing just how things are unfolding day to day in the real world. My, my interest in libertarianism actually started when I was in college. Uh, this was 2003, 2004, in the midst of the Iraq war. And um, it was the Bush-Kerry election. And um, I had a friend who was in the Marines. Uh, we were kind of like pen pals through uh, his boot camp. Um, I had family who had died in Vietnam, my, my, my grandfather, who I, who I never met. And, and so I was really thinking deeply at that time about like American interventionism and like, why is my friend in Iraq and wasn't adding up. And, you know, I, I was very against Bush at that time. But then John Kerry also was not the most uh, inspiring figure. And, you know, he was criticizing the uh, the the pretense for the Iraq war, but wasn't really saying that he was going to do anything differently going forward. Um, and I kind of knew about third parties and I just Googled the Libertarian Party and saw their platform, uh, which was very clear about their stance towards interventionism. Um, and then that was kind of like my entry. I started reading the rest of their platform. I'm like, oh, this I guess I did have libertarian instincts. I'm like, okay, this is, there's a whole philosophy connected to this. And I started reading, you know, like Milton Friedman and people like that. And then Ron Paul ran in 2008. And I, that was my introduction to the whole Austrian school. Um, I, I actually read all of human action. And then um, once I started at Reason, that was really my introduction to Hayek. So that was my, I guess, philosophical journey. How old are you? Are you about, are you about my age? I, I'm 37. 37. So you're a little bit younger than me. So uh, a few years um, behind me in terms of the Ron Paul movement, um, mm -hmm. were you – I guess you would have been old enough to vote at that point, right, when he first yeah. started? Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Um, so what was, um, you had been well, well old enough to vote at mm -hmm. that point. So what, what was that movement like to you? What did, how did that feel to you and how does that compare to anything we have today? Oh, I, I was, I was inspired by it because, you know, like I said, I, when I first got into like libertarian politics was, it was the the election before ron paul came on the scene 2004 and back then it was like libertarian you say that word and nobody knows what it means i think it's like a dietary choice or something 
but then uh, Ron Paul came onto the scene and suddenly, uh, I guess it was also just the, the rise of social media as well. You, you start to see, oh, there are a lot of other people who kind of agree with this set of ideas. Like, and, and he was, you know, tapping into that. So that was, that was really exciting. And, and he was also, you know, bringing all sorts of other things in addition to just libertarianism um, to it, that, it, you know, the, the whole, um, you know, monetary policy was not something I had ever really thought about. Um, so that, that, that was kind of, you know, a learning experience for me, but, uh, yeah, I, that 2000, Ron Paul's 2008 campaign, um, I was one of the people, you know, watching him go up against Giuliani and, uh, thinking that was, uh, a, a great moment. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, w I was excited by the Ron Paul movement. And then, you know, I watched all the people that came in the wake of that, uh, your, yourself included and, um, thought it was going to, you know, I, I had I had high hopes for where that was going. It didn't exactly pan out how I how I had um, dreamed, but um, yeah, that was definitely. Yeah. So, what do you think happened? Because I I agree with you. I got in politics um, not because of Ron Paul. I mean, I was a libertarian before that, but yeah. certainly seeing Ron Paul on the scene was an inspiration to see someone who was going against the grain who was willing to stand up on principle. And I don't agree with him on everything. I'm sure you don't agree with him on everything. Yeah. Um, and there's some messaging and tactics and other things we would disagree with. But um, it was inspiring to see someone who was doing things differently and did not resemble really the, the two major parties. Like it was very different. He was as different from the Republicans as he was from the Democrats. Um, I thought that this would be an opening for people like me and Rand Paul and Thomas Massey and a number of others, but it didn't really pan out. Not because, um, you know, we weren't able to go there and vote like libertarians on mm -hmm. on so many issues, but because it sort of stopped there, right? Like it, there were like a few of us who got into Congress after that. And then it didn't really grow the way we expected. I mean, we had some people like Mark Sanford and Raul Labrador and others who came in who had libertarian leanings, but that sort of dissipated. Like those people are largely gone, and it's yeah. something very different now. What do you think happened? I think the what I think it's one word, and that is Trump is what happened because you know it was it could have gone a direction where yes, Rand Paul would be the successor to Ron Paul. And, and he tried to, you know, run a presidential campaign that I had hoped uh, would have promise in 2016. Um, and he just got squashed by Trump. Um, and suddenly, uh, you know, a lot of, and Trump divided the libertarian movement. There were the libertarians who thought, okay, we need this wrecking ball because the establishment is so corrupt um, that even if Trump isn't a libertarian, at least he's going in there and he's messing everything up and we can rebuild something better from that. So, um, so just, to stop was, you, yeah, sure. just to stop you for a second, I, I don't mean to interrupt your thought here, but before we get too far past it, do you think that 
in many respects, Ron Paul attracted a lot of people who weren't necessarily libertarians, but just wanted the person who was going to basically disrupt in the greatest way. I, this is a thing that Thomas Massey often says, which is, um, I don't know how he frames it exactly, but you know, they were just voting for the craziest person. Um, and I, I mean that in the nicest way, uh, yeah. just the person who was going to shake things up the most. And it wasn't necessarily because they agreed with his libertarian principles. And so when someone like Trump comes along, he again is just a disruptor in a sense. And while he's very different from Ron Paul, I mean, I mean yes. they're very far apart on policies and in, and in many other respects, um, but he's another disruptor. Do you think that that is the bigger driver than libertarianism? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think the I think disruption uh, or disruptor is the right way to think about. That's what connects both of them. Ron Paul was disrupting what was supposed to unfold on the Republican primary stage by questioning their foreign policy, which had really been central to the appeal of the Bush administration and Everyone else on that stage was continuing and, and he was tapping into some discontent there. Um, and then, you know, his his stance on other things like monetary policy and drugs as well. Um, and, the you know, the so, yes, he was offering a critique of the establishment that to some degree was, well, I would say to a large degree, was bipartisan um, and people who just sensed something was wrong with that consensus were attracted to Ron Paul. Uh, now, and Trump also had was bringing that implicit critique. I think they were both offering pretty different prescriptions, though. I mean, I think I think Trump uh, drew from Ron Paul a little bit. I mean, he he tried to um, talk. Ron Paul's game a little bit on foreign policy, um, but Ron Paul, you know, is a is a constitutional libertarian leaning conservative. He believes in the constitutional order, uh, and I don't think he's a burn it all down wrecking ball type. Whereas Trump, um, I think, does not care about any of that, and um, a lot of his followers don't care about any of that. And honestly, a lot of the people who were part of the, the Ron Paul movement who joined the Trump camp um, and went full MAGA, I think they've abandoned any interest in the Constitution. Do you think well. we do you think we have some sort of fusionism that's happening right now that's different than the fusionism of before? Like for many years, you had this libertarian fusionism with essentially like a Reagan conservatism. And now it seems like maybe you've got this libertarian fusionism with Trumpism and a lot of what is described as the libertarian movement today is more of a burn it all down libertarianism than what Ron Paul was offering, which is the constitution is important. Um, we can save this republic and we need to stand up for uh, you know, our system – the way it's intended to work. I, yeah. I feel like the messaging is very different now. And you've talked about this. You had this um, recent talk with Dave Smith about national divorce and the libertarian yeah. party for sure, for sure has emphasized national divorce as well as many Republicans are emphasizing national divorce now. So is there now like within libertarianism, this 
this fusionism uh, within the Libertarian Party, let's say, where Trumpism and uh, Libertarianism have fused together, even though the Libertarian Party and many Libertarians have very different policy ideas than Trump. But in some sense, it's the same, burn this whole place down, um, we're better off starting from scratch or all dividing. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if fusionism is the right way to think about it, because like, what is Trump? Like, I do think Trumpism is a thing. And I think there are people who are trying to build on that, like Josh Hawley, uh, people like Blake Masters running in Arizona, like they're trying to create, you know, uh, a coherent Trumpism. And I don't think necessarily that is what people within the Libertarian Party are trying to fuse with. I think the aspect of Trump they like was the chaotic aspect. I think it's the anarchic aspect um, that they are trying to harness. And so in a sense, I could see like that faction of the Libertarian Party kind of fighting with like the Blake Masters and Hollies of the world for the, the mega crowd like they want to they they each want to you know peel them off for their own ends and um you know the the danger that i see with pushing forward you know this national divorce language and you know right before this conversation started uh, i saw a, a, a tweet go out from the libertarian party twitter account replying to alexandra ocasio-cortez criticizing the Supreme Court and the, the LP Twitter account is just saying like, uh, yeah, we, we agree with you. The Supreme Court is illegitimate. They shouldn't be uh, these five or these, these nine lawyers shouldn't be like pr deciding for 330 million people. So they're still like committed to this idea or there's still like a faction within the Libertarian Party that is committed to this idea that uh, we need to just like scrap all of this, like it, it hasn't, the, the constitutional order just hasn't been working. Um, and so anything that uh, kind of undermines that and starts to accelerate its collapse is good. And fundamentally, I just don't agree with that. Yeah. And I, I agree with you that the Libertarian Party does not really agree with Hawley and Masters and libertarians generally do not agree with them on a whole bunch of things. But it seems like there's a certain fusionism, if not in the messaging, in the tactics, um, and this idea that we need to just tear things down. Now, yeah. I find this a little bit unusual coming from, say, the Trump people because there's a big nationalist element to yeah. Trumpism and – can you reconcile the nationalism of, say, Trumpism or Hawley or Masters or these others who really fit within what we might call the national conservative movement right. and and the desire to sort of like tear the place down and form our own enclaves? No, I don't think that it is, is able to be reconciled. And I think that the – it's like there's the, the – the national conservatives, these guys who are, you know, affiliated with like the Claremont Institute um, and they're like these, you know, they think of themselves as these like kind of highbrow like intellectuals. But I think who the some people in the Libertarian Party are trying to fuse with or pick off are like the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. Like 
these are, I don't think Marjorie Taylor Greene is a national conservative. I think she's just kind of a, a populist um, who, um, you know, hates progressives. And um, that is what I think some people in the Libertarian Party are trying to fuse with um, and promote are the, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. And I don't know that. Um, it, and that that goes to like the Massey point of like, okay, uh, do we want to like try to attract just like the people who want to vote for like the craziest son of a bitch uh, on the ticket or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. I think that the alliance is more with the Marjorie Taylor Greene types, but I'm not sure that someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene and a lot of people within that world even see the difference between, say, a Green and a Blake Masters or a Hawley. That these are these are different philosophies in many respects. Which one is the more dangerous philosophy, though? Um, say the Blake Masters, J.D. Vance, Hawley, or the Green Bobert sort of thing that's going on, and you might. Uh, maybe you'd put Matt Gates in that camp too. Like, yeah, I think the national conservatives are the more dangerous one because I think they are, uh, they have um, a pretty like coherent ideology that um, is, I think inherently um, authoritarian. And um, well, so tell me, tell me what you think their ideology is because I've, I've listened to some of their conversations. Um, they've been on Clubhouse talking sometimes, and I've even listened to those conversations. And I'm not always sure what their view is, other than they want to control the levers of power. Yeah. Uh, but um, what is what is the philosophy other than control of of power? Well, personally, I think that authoritarianism is its own political philosophy so like uh like when you get you know that's this is why when you you look at what happened with like both you know fascism and communism in the 20th century they both ended up as just the, the they started off different but they kind of like ended up in the same horrible place because i think it it ultimately is all about power um but i think like the the ideology so, so yeah i think that the first and foremost like gaining power yes that is like the primary objective um and then you know what they want to do with that uh is to um like stimulate the what what they believe is a traditional um family structure and uh, like revive what they view as traditional American culture. And so, you know, a single, you know, one, one person, uh, you know, single income families, most often the woman um, staying home, the man working, um, they want, uh, you know, to really stop the flow of immigration. Um, They want, uh, I think a lot of protectionism, um, they want, you know, made in the USA. Um, they, they want to like reestablish what they think is American culture. And they believe like the flow of immigration is, um, turning America into something that, 
they don't like. Um, and uh, I think they're also, you know, believe that we're headed for a confrontation uh, with China and they want to um, start, I guess, fortifying our defenses for that confrontation. So I've read what they've written and they view libertarians as if not their main nemesis as one of their um, primary enemies. Definitely. But do libertarians see it that way? Because my impression is that within the libertarian movement um, and you might say within the libertarian party, especially, but among libertarians generally, they do not talk about national conservatism as the threat as much as they do about say wokus or progressives or the left yeah um which one is a i mean which one is the is the bigger threat or are they both threats they're just coming at they're coming at libertarians from both sides or in some in some sense they're both authoritarian movements um so are they equal threats uh, are we are we as libertarians missing the giant threat from national conservatism to our way of life to libertarianism to freedom? Is there too much of a focus on the wokeism? I I I think that we're I think that there tends to be a blind spot there because progressives are in charge of the government right now and they also are you know, in dominant positions in legacy media right now. And so Mm -hmm. it's viewed libertarians, I think, rightly see that progressives do have their hands on many of the levers of power right now. And so that is something, you know, and, and even though Trump was president throughout COVID and everything, a lot of the COVID, uh, regime or restrictions were implemented at the local and state level by progressives. Um, and so, and, and kind of like, um, uh, perpetuated or amplified by progressives in media. And so I think that's why like so much of the focus is on progressives, but I think that then the, the danger and, you know, Hayek has written about this is that what happens is then when the backlash comes, that, gives an opportunity for the right wing authoritarians to kind of slip in and your, your guard is down against that. And so I, I think that is the biggest concern I have is that um, if you're kind of just monomaniacally like focused on defeating progressives, then you're going to miss the authoritarian threats that, that are there, even if they are not, you know, quite as present at this very moment in time. So, Trump was sort of a beta release for national conservatism. Like he was out there, people saw him. He he did a lot of crazy things. He expanded federal power. Um, he used emergency powers in really uh, horrible ways. He he said he's going to declare an emergency to build a wall, which is absurd, of course. Um, he he did all sorts of things that abused power. And my sense is libertarians generally did not see him as the threat uh, 
that he was compared to, say, even a Joe Biden or AOC, who's often criticized. Why is that? Why don't they see? Because we we actually lived through it in some sense. Yeah. And, you know, I was very critical of Trump on so many policies, including, as people know, I I don't have to tell anyone about this, but wars, for example, because libertarians are are so adamant that the wars have to end, and I agree. Um, Trump said he wanted to end the wars, but then expanded them. For most of his term, until the very last few months when he pulled some troops out. But through most of his term, he had more fighting going on, more troops in action, more bombings. Um, the, the casualties in places like Somalia and um, Afghanistan even prior to some of the pullback uh, and the stuff going on in Yemen, that was horrific stuff under Trump. But you didn't see the same reaction from libertarians that you did say when Obama was doing it. So what is going on there? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say with foreign policy. I almost feel like there's a, and and I just use that. I just use foreign policy as one example, because there's all sorts of other things like civil asset forfeiture expanded under Trump. um, Lots of civil liberties violations generally. So the uh, FISA was renewed under Trump. Yep. So the things that libertarians say they really care about, Trump did those things, but doesn't get the same backlash that say an Obama gets or or even Bush Cheney, you know, back in the day. Yeah, I think that you know foreign policy is a good example to pick, though, because it's something that I mean, it's like I said at the beginning of this was personally very important to me, but. Um, it's been going on for so long that it's created this kind of numbness. Um, and that started, you know, to happen during the Obama administration. This was extremely frustrating to a lot of libertarians, including myself. I made one of the first videos I made for reason was called what happened to the anti-war movement when Obama came to office, um, because it just like dropped off, but the wars were still going and Obama started new wars with no authorization and nobody cared. And it was particularly frustrating for libertarians because that's like what progressives are supposed to be good on. And Obama specifically ran, um, counter to like, he, I, I believe he won largely because it was a repudiation of the Bush years. Um, and then he didn't really change course and really made things worse and nobody seemed to care um, other than libertarians and some, you know, lefties like Glenn Greenwald or whatever you consider him these days. Um, but, but then by the time Trump came around, I feel like the numbness even spread to libertarians and also you couldn't even it there there wasn't even like the hypocrisy there because trump is just like you know he he ran as who he is like and and you know it is true he he didn't he didn't start any new wars um so i i think libertarians were and then libertarians were also like you know, what, what I hear a lot is that, uh, or what, what I see a lot is that, you know, libertarians were kind of analyzing the way media, the media was covering Trump versus how they covered Obama. And, you know, um, 
sometimes getting things raw, uh, like grossly wrong. And, uh, you know, that, that seemed to be what, what the focus shifted to. Um, I don't know. So, uh, so yeah. what about the fact that even the left-wing media did not really cover foreign policy the same way under Trump. What happened yeah. there? Is it because they were so busy with the other stuff? They were like, well, we have so many other things to go after with Trump and we want to nail him on this stuff. And we want to show how bad he is and the war stuff doesn't really help us. Is that what they thought? Like, well, well they were, what if oh, we, if we say that he's, yeah. if we say that he's bad on war, that doesn't help us because it doesn't show us any contrast. Like we can't, we can't really say that he's worse than Obama, even though in, in some ways he was worse than Obama in some ways better, depending on the, on the particular conflict. But um, is it because they couldn't make any good comparisons? So like, why bother going after him on war? I, I think so. And again, I think it's um, sadly people are numb to it and it doesn't seem to be a big motivating factor for a lot of voters. And in fact, the media the one time they that a lot of the legacy media was celebrating Trump was when he was like uh, sending missiles into Syria. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, right. You know, that, that's pres- when he became president. Yeah, that's yeah, when he became president, like, right? Writing odes to that moment. So um, <laughs> that that's the situation that that we're in now. Um, and you know, I, I interviewed um, Scott Horton ab- about this uh, big anti-war libertarian voice and. He pointed out, like, you know, Trump, one good thing he did with regards to foreign policy is he at least, like, changed the conversation uh, on the right. He, like, kind of made it okay for people on the right to um, think the Iraq war was a mistake. Like, he officially, like, uh, made that okay. Um, But, yeah, I think people just still take... uh, they still value the rhetoric over over the policy and, and yeah, Trump, so Trump never prioritized foreign policy. Like he said a lot of things that libertarians would like, but he didn't put the peep the personnel in place that were necessary to start actually I mean, you, you're the person who uh, probably understands this better than most that he didn't do like it seems like if somebody wants to start reversing course on a U.S. foreign policy, that has to be like priority number one or two. And you have to actually put the people in place and have a plan to do it. Otherwise, you're going to face all these headwinds in the media and in Congress and the intelligence agencies. And he just was not equipped for that task. And libertarians should, you know, hold him accountable for that and see that for the failure that it was. Yeah, so the pushback I have against people who say, well, at least he used good rhetoric, yeah. is that my concern about that was that because he was using good rhetoric, anti-war rhetoric a lot of times, but then expanding the wars at the same time, it actually made people take their foot off of the pedal in terms of the anti-war movement, yeah. where a lot of people – particularly on the right, who might have been in the anti-war camp, I will talk to them, and to this day, many of them think that under Trump, there were no bombings going on, the troops were were brought home generally, 
which of course, even to the extent he brought any troops home, it wasn't until the last um, bit of his presidency. And even then, he didn't really reduce troop, troop levels much below what Obama had when uh, Trump took office or when Obama left office. So no. my concern about all the rhetoric was that it was actually taking the pressure off. The reason a lot of people weren't saying, hey, we have to stop these wars is because Trump was saying, I'm anti-war and he was and he was spreading that message and people were like, yeah, the the wars are bad, but it made them take their eye off the ball. Because mm-hmm. they figured if this guy at the top is saying the wars are bad and he's bringing the troops home, even though it wasn't true, that it must be happening. They just trusted him to do it. They didn't go review the data. They didn't see that there were bombings still going on. And there wasn't a lot of, again, left-wing media coverage of it. So in, in some ways, it was very frustrating for someone like me who is anti-war to look at that and to know that people were not riled up anymore Precisely because Trump was using anti-war rhetoric and then not living up to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, but and and he also, I mean, he assassinated an Iranian general. Um, and this is, you know, you know, Trump didn't start any new conflicts, thank God, but he certainly could have, and right. uh, he didn't have any respect for the constitutional balance of powers that was not something that was interest that he was interested in he just thought that a lot of these wars were wasteful which which they are but it did from there you can't infer that uh he's not going to get involved in a war that he thinks is a good idea and launch that unilaterally so that that would be you know, a major danger of a second trump term if he were to run in 2024 is that just because nothing got started the first time, there's no, there's nothing in his philosophy or behavior that I see that would prevent him from stumbling us into uh, another conflict. So let's let's talk briefly about Biden. Okay. So Biden pulled the troops. He finally did pull the troops out of Afghanistan. Yeah. Do you? think biden has anti-war instincts i don't but i don't understand his he he seemed pretty determined to pull them on out of afghanistan is he just against that war while he's still continuing others or what do you think was the motivation there i i think he has some anti-war instincts i mean it from what i understand he was the relative restrainer within the Obama administration that he was kind of going head to head with uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, team to try to um, stop the stop escalations and, you know, not go uh, into Libya. Uh, So I think he has that instinct. I know, you know, what happened to his son over there, I think it seems like had a profound impact on him. Um, you know, when, when people have a personal uh, investment like that, like I, I take it seriously. Like I believe that can really, you know, move people to act uh, in like politically kind of surprising ways. So I think he has that, but you know, ultimately he is a liberal internationalist, um, and um, right now you see that playing out in terms of his, you know, the U.S.'s stance towards. Um, Ukraine and um, 
uh, you know, he's, I wouldn't say he's, he's anti-war, anti-intervention, but I, I think that he, like many Americans, was weary of the Afghanistan, the 20 year Afghanistan uh, conflict. Do you think the left has moved in a more uh, accommodating way toward war? Are they, has the, has the anti-war left disappeared pretty much? I mean, there's still some people there. I know having served in Congress, you have a share of members of Congress on the left who are still anti-war mm-hmm. and and vehemently so. But then is the driving force behind, say, the Democratic Party now more pro-war or at least just ambivalent? I think that there's a general ambivalence because we are running – There, everyone realizes we are – running out of money to pay for this stuff. So um, it's, you know, I I think like there were some lessons learned from Iraq uh, and Afghanistan and, you know, the situation that we're in right now, we, we're restrained just less by ideology and more so by necessity. Yeah. So, We've talked a little bit about um, the split in the Libertarian Party. Do you think that this is a split that will continue to grow? Or do you think that now that essentially one faction of the Libertarian Party has full control of the party, that there's some sort of moderating that eventually happens? Because whenever one group has total control of something – it's almost inevitable that there will be some splits that develop. I think, uh, you know, uh, I think it depends what the influential actors within the party do. Um, I think that uh, the the new leadership uh, definitely has a specific strategic and philo- philosophical vision in mind. Um, but, there are people who, you know, from going to Reno and talking to the delegates there, I know that it's certainly not unanimous. Um, and uh, I don't see why. I think, like, the sense that I got talking to everyone there was, um, you know, there's the hardcore Mises Caucus people who are uh, really excited about advancing that that specific strategic and philosophical vision. And then there's the, the rest of the delegates who voted for that slate of leadership who maybe have been around the party a long time and were just feeling frustrated that it was spinning its wheels and not seeming to make any progress. And if anything, in 2020, uh, you know, backsliding a little bit. Um, and they're seeing this energy and enthusiasm coming in and people saying things that sound, um, you know, really hardcore and, uh, you know, strident opposition to a lot of the nonsense that played out over the past two years. Um, and so I think, you know, the that is more so than like the specific Mises vision, Mises caucus, like vision of what libertarianism is. I think that 
is what excites like a majority of the people that like a majority of the people within the party can agree on. So uh, it seems to me like there's a lot of uh, room for negotiation about, you know, where you land on certain policies and what kind of candidates you run. And, you know, that like uh, Angela McArdle, the new chair, I think seems like a fairly pragmatic person who's willing to run different kinds of candidates in different kinds of races. So I, I think it's it's open to be uh, for negotiation. But I'm, I'm curious to kind of turn the tables on you on this one, since you are, you know, one of the major figureheads within the party. Like, how are you feeling about that as someone who I think is a little bit at odds with uh, the vision of, of some of the new leadership? Yeah, I think the disagreement I have with them tends to center around strategy and somewhat around messaging. And we've talked about the national divorce messaging, for example. So there is there's some of that. As for particular policies, look, I'm a very libertarian person. Uh, my libertarianism is more in the Hayek and Mises realm, and I think a lot of them are more like Rothbardian yeah. um, or even Hoppian, which is like – I don't. I don't know um, whether I'd even describe that as within the traditional libertarian scope. It's a little more toward the neo-reactionary side. Mm-hmm. So there is some difference there. But look, I don't. Um, I don't disagree in a lot of the overall policy. I believe in decentralization. I believe in protecting people's rights. I I understand the desire for individualism. So, and these are things I I fought for as a member of Congress. I think it's probably a good thing that this all played out. I mean, there was a lot of pent-up frustration within the party because um, the Mises people, the Mises caucus, was not comfortable with the way things were going in the past. So... Mm -hmm. I think you almost have to have this clash and this takeover in order to get some of that frustration out there. And maybe after this, we can all come together in some way that is beneficial for libertarianism generally. I don't know what's going to happen going forward, but I am hopeful that we can all work together. So far, what I've heard from a lot of people within the current leadership is, yes, let's work together and they've certainly uh, been inviting. And I'm, I am concerned about people who left the party who said, hey, we don't want to be in this party now because different people have taken over. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think most of the people involved in this movement that is now in charge of the party are good people who are dedicated to um, setting – America free, setting people free, and dedicated to individual rights. And they bring a lot of energy to it and enthusiasm. And a lot of times there are people um, who are just new to libertarianism too. Like a lot of the people that were brought in are just young people. They're college age. They're learning about libertarianism. And I think it's a great opportunity to bring these fresh minds in, people who are energetic and enthusiastic and teach them more about libertarianism and uh, and have them out there 
volunteering and campaigning and doing other things. We need all those people. I mean, we're we're a small party, so we have to have as many people as possible. So let's bring them in. Um, so I guess I'm I'm hopeful. I wouldn't be sticking around the party if I weren't hopeful about it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they can't go off course. I do think that, uh, as you've talked about and I've talked about, I do think that some of the messaging is is wrong and can lead to the party not growing the way it needs to. Uh, I don't think we should cater to 5% of the population. I think it's a mistake to say, hey, let's try to get 100% of the 5%. Mm-hmm. I think we need to be broadening our horizons and trying to bring in uh, something like a third of the country into our camp. And I think we can do that, but um, but our messaging has to be very broad. It doesn't have to be watered down. It can be it can be one hundred percent libertarian messaging that is broadly appealing. And, and perfect examples of that is just, for example, uh, a respect for divided powers and the concept of de- decentralization. Most Americans already agree with that. Like you don't mm-hmm. have to convince people about separation of powers. Or that the Speaker of the House shouldn't dictate everything to the entire Congress. Or um, that the federal government shouldn't do everything. That there are things that should be reserved to the state governments and local governments and, of course, the people. These aren't new concepts we have to introduce to people. Most Americans are already with us, so all we have to do is show that the other parties aren't living up to these things that that we all believe in. So I think broader messaging like that is more effective than, say, something like national divorce, which immediately takes people to something else in their mind, like uh, maybe the Civil War or um, people wanting to break into smaller units so that they can uh, participate in things like segregation or racism or whatever. That's what goes into people's minds when they hear things like national divorce or maybe secession. Is mm-hmm. oh, it's a group of people who want to just have their own uh, sphere of intolerance, and well, wh- and I worry about that kind of messaging, yeah, being the one that the party spreads. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that Dave Smith raised with me when I was talking with him about this is he was saying that like the fundamental divide here is like how bad do you think it is right now, um, and. Do we, you know, that this needs to be on the table because uh, right now we're facing a situation where we have two parties that are getting increasingly authoritarian and it's just kind of a race to grab that brass ring and like keep it indefinitely um, and like establish, you know, a um, a, a permanent like authoritarian uh, centralized state. Um w- and so we've had the cons, you know, to kind of flesh out his argument as best I can. Like we've had the Constitution, um, and look where we are now. Like we tried playing by the rules, and now um, it's time to uh, possibly consider more dramatic action. Like, what do you think of that line of argument? Well, but where are we now? That's the question I would say. Um, yeah. Like, do you think? 
Americans are better off now than say 25 years ago or 50 years ago or 75 years ago. I think almost everyone would say yes, including most libertarians if they're honest about it. Yeah. Um, While as someone who served in Congress, I'm very um, horrified by the centralization of power. I am horrified by the Speaker of the House dictating everything to everyone. I myself have said that our government operates like an oligarchy. So mm-hmm. I'm not a person who's held back when you talk about, you know, uh, expressing ourselves radically, you know, to show our differences from from the other parties. Look, I haven't held back from saying we live in an oligarchy in many respects. We don't have a representative system of government, despite what people will claim. And I know that having served in Congress. Uh, Nonetheless, I think that the institutions that we do have are redeemable. And I think that they are very important institutions and that the constitution, as you've said, is a weapon that we can uh, wield for our ideas Because the Constitution, even though it's not perfect and libertarians can come up with all sorts of disagreements with this part of the Constitution or that part of the Constitution, and we can certainly say that the Constitution has not been followed in the way that we would like it to be followed. I mean, that's a given. Nonetheless, having something as essentially the framework of our federal government – a framework of our federal government also – be aligned largely with libertarian principles as opposed to the principles of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or uh, conservatives or progressives or whoever else, whatever other labels you want to use, that the principles are actually well aligned with libertarianism. That's an advantage for us that we should use. So when I would um, go to town halls as a congressman, I use the Constitution because – Look, we live in America, and everyone in the audience, whatever else they might think about my views, if I can show how my views are aligned with our Constitution, that's an advantage for me rhetorically. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a huge messaging advantage. Like you can say whatever you want about you don't like my views on this or that or you're concerned about them or you don't understand them. But when I can show that it aligns with the Constitution, the best you can do is say – well, I think the Constitution's bad. Okay, that's fine. You can think the Constitution's bad, but look, at the end of the day, um, if you want to change the Constitution, you can go to cha- try to change the Constitution. This is the framework we have for our system of government, and nobody's your, saying it's perfect. What's your sense of you know how much voters care about that? Because I know your career, your political career, has been a lot of it has been about. Uh, upholding these institutions, explaining every single vote and why, uh, it, you know, this bill does or does not align with the Constitution, impeaching Trump because he's violating uh, the Constitution or, or his oath of office. Um, but, uh, you know, is that something that voters connect to or is it at this point just to abstract and academic because this is the advantage that i see that kind of the current 
leadership of the Libertarian Party has is they're like, we're just going to distill down this really um, provocative message that uh, it's impossible to not react to one way or another. Whereas sometimes if you talk about, you know, institutions, people's eyes start to glaze over. Yeah, no, I, I think this is where my experience in politics is a huge advantage Hmm. in that I had to campaign in a district that was largely a 50, 50 district. And I was very openly a libertarian philosophically. I may have been running as a Republican for many years, but my philosophy was undeniably libertarian. It was very different from the other Republicans who were running, and people in my district knew it. I didn't hide it. I advertised it, and I held town halls that were very open, always open to the public. I didn't screen questions. Other members of Congress who hold town halls, they screen the questions. They will have people write them on a piece of paper. They'll even screen people at the door and say like, well, you can't come in because you're this or that. You're not from the district or – um, you know, just trying to stop people from coming in. I never did any of that. People would come in and say and ask whatever they want. I called on people at random. I did not know the people calling on me the vast majority of the time, calling that I was calling on the vast majority of the time. And I had to answer tough questions and convince people of libertarianism, of the the way I was voting on things, and then also convince them not just that it was okay, but that they liked it and they should vote for me. Mm-hmm. And it worked. It 100% worked. I was consistently the top vote getter in the district uh, at all levels of um, campaign. So like at whatever race you're looking at and you looked at a pr- particular precinct, on average, I had the highest number of votes of anyone in that precinct. So – so it definitely worked, and I was getting crossover appeal. My appeal from Democrats was higher than any of the Republicans that any of the yeah. other Republicans were getting. So, um, I think that something like the Constitution is very effective because when you can use something like the Constitution rhetorically as a device and accurately, because I believe in it. You know, I believe in what I'm saying when I say it. I'm not just I'm not just using the word Constitution willy-nilly like some people do um anything they don't like is unconstitutional anything they do like is constitutional no i was using it uh in a uh, correct way according to my principles and according to my reading of the constitution of course but when people would see me vote against my own party and i would say i'm doing it on constitutional grounds here's why i'm voting against republicans on constitutional grounds then when I would come in and vote against the other party on constitutional grounds, whatever they were pushing, it was easier for everyone to accept what I was doing. Everyone in the audience could say, look, Justin Amash has pissed us off because he voted against this thing. But look, he's he's pissing off the other side now. And he's using the Constitution. He's citing the Constitution again. He's not doing this because of some kind of like personal vendetta or he's he's just some kind of partisan, um, some kind of biased hack who's just using power however he wants it. He clearly has a set of principles he's following. And I think 
that even people who don't care about your principles, they might not understand the Constitution the way you do. Hmm. They want to know that you are principled. See, and, and I think yeah. there's there's so much value in that that is missed by people who say, well, just tear the whole thing down. And instead of instead of setting, um, uh, you know, our messaging on a framework like the Constitution, just like you know, put it out there as well. This is just what we believe. I I think people are missing the power of having something like a constitution that is a generally accepted framework that all of the voters um, can understand is a reasonable framework. Even if they have disagreements with it, they can understand that it's a reasonable framework and then showing that you are aligned to it in some way. I think that's very important. I, I think I, I convinced so many people in this district because they felt like he's grounded in something and that makes us trust him more. Yeah. And yeah. and I think that's the value that's missed. It's not because they agree with the Constitution or agree with all of my principles. It's the knowledge that I am principled and I follow the Constitution that is important to them. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's all gotten um, so cynical. Like, everyone on all sides uh, has kind of just, like, embraced the cynicism of, like, it's just about getting my tribe in there and then, like, uh, getting as much out of it as I can. And, um, you know, I think I'm also very cynical about um, national politics especially, but the idea that you could bring back like fairness as a virtue um, is kind of interesting. And like, you, you know, you mentioned like you were in one of these districts that was 50 50 and that's sort of the opposite of this idea of uh, we're all going to go into these ideologically sorted enclaves. Like that's the future is everyone's going to be in like communist enclaves in California and like a theocracy in Texas. And then like, you know, a pure libertarian New Hampshire. Um, I mean, the reality is that, uh, you know, there has been some of that sorting um, throughout the pandemic as people have, you know, moved across the country and moved uh, to places that more align with, you know, maybe some of their values. But um, I do wonder if that is like uh, a message that could be appealing is like, you know, I'm going to try to, transcend that a little bit and apply fairness and the constitution is like the the framework for that yeah and do you think that we are more divided today than we used to be or is it just perception in the sense that we now have social media and so all of our divisions are magnified uh, I, I think about this a lot, and it's possible that the perception creates division too. Like the yeah. perception can then create division. But I now look at social media, and I'll see people getting totally upset about something that is halfway across the country in some little town that they will never have anything to do with. They will never pass through that town. And something is going on that is a very local issue. Um, and we've seen some of this with like the, the drag shows, for example, 
Mm-hmm. I, I've probably seen more on drag shows on Twitter than I have ever seen <laughs> in my life. You know, like, uh, I, I don't think I've ever actually witnessed anything close to a drag show in real life. And on Twitter, I see it all the time by people who are against drag shows. So, mm-hmm. um, isn't this like a sense in which we are like perceiving division when actually like we're perceiving more division when actually these divisions already existed um, for a long time. We've had different communities that have different views and different things have been going on everywhere. And we just haven't always been all up in everyone's business. Yeah. I mean, that's the global village idea is we are, that's, you know, when you're in a village, you're just like snooping on every, you know, the rumors go around. Everyone uh, knows what everyone else is up to. And now we're at, we're doing that at scale um, and at like lightning speed with the power of a retweet. But um, the other thing about it in the realm of politics is that it's been proven somewhat effective. Like people, are able to uh, win um, using these methods. Uh, you know, this is kind of like the, the Chris Rufo strategy um, that people, you know, some people have said that contributed to Yunkin winning in uh, Virginia. So that is the question because, oh, there's one, I think the Mises Caucus uh, faction of the Libertarian Party believes that uh, Libertarians should lean into that. Like, that's just how it is. And so we need to just, like, go full bore into uh, the Libertarian Party just needs to go full bore into the culture war um, because that is what works to uh, gain energy and momentum. Um, and it seems like you are maybe proposing some sort of alternative model. Well, I, I just... Don't see how it's a positive future where we all live in little enclaves of people who agree with us, mm-hmm. and and that's what we consider society. Like good society is I, you know, I interact with the same hundred people who all agree with me about every issue. Um, that doesn't seem like a positive thing for libertarians or a libertarian world. That I, I mean, at least I, it's not one I really like. Um, I like a world where we interact with a lot of people and it's vibrant and there are disagreements and we learn things because when you start talking to people who agree with you on everything all the time, you stop learning really like learning is learning is about hearing something you didn't think about before or an idea you maybe disagreed with that someone persuaded you about because you interacted with them enough. And um, and I feel like the more we're in enclaves, the more it plays into our biases and it plays into stubbornness and lack of growth. And I don't think this is good for society. So I actually, I actually go back to Mises, you know, Ludwig von Mises, and look at what his vision was. I mean, his vision was that we're all part of like a world community. Like that's what he talked about. He talked about being a cosmopolitan liberal, as he described it, which we think of as libertarian today. Um, someone who is in like a, a world society. We're all individuals, citizens of the world. Mm-hmm. And I feel like 
the modern, um, at least libertarian and some of the um, conservative movement is toward more of like enclaves and isolation and um, not world citizens, but citizens of very small communities, small, disparate, disconnected communities. And and I just don't see how that's a positive thing. I also don't think it's realistic. Like we're going to interact with other people. There's going to be governance at multiple levels. I think what a lot of people miss in all of this discussion is scale. Like, uh, you know, there was this um, thing from Rothbard about, like, if you don't believe in a one world government, then you ultimately should believe in just anarchy. Yeah. But that doesn't connect with this idea of scale really well. Like, there's a difference between uh, the way world governance would work and federal governance and state governance and community governance and individual governance. These are different things, and all of them are necessary in some way. This doesn't mean that they're identical. For example, I don't want uh, something like the federal government deciding much of anything for my daily life. But we might say as 4% of the world's population, the United States is only 4% of the world's population. So we're already a small group. The small group of us, the 4%, 96% of the world is outside of the United States. So the 4% of us might say, hey, you know, we've got things pretty good here. This is pretty good. Maybe we should form an alliance just for defensive purposes against outside threats where we just want to be protected against outside threats. We don't want someone coming in. I mean, we're out, we're vastly outnumbered. Mm-hmm. So if the world marched on, on, you know, Grand Rapids, Michigan, we wouldn't stand much of a chance. So let's all unite here to defend ourselves against out- outward threats. That seems like a reasonable thing for the federal government to do. And it seems like something you would want as a um, libertarian, just from a governance standpoint, regardless of anything else, you may say you don't want the federal government doing X, Y, Z, A, B, C, all sorts of stuff that it's doing now. But the idea that we just discard governance at higher levels um, is to me ridiculous. Like we we just don't do that. Like it's not natural. It doesn't even make sense logically. Yeah. Um, well, you know, as it pertains to national defense, that's something that specifically, uh, you know, Dave was saying that when you look at the state of the current military industrial complex and um, the affiliated, you know, intelligence agencies that. Maybe it is, and I think a lot of libertarians uh, agree with him here that you know maybe it would be better if this like just did not exist at all. And I think that is partly what is motivating the national divorce idea is the idea that um, 
you know, the American empire is so um, egregious and, uh, you know, deadly that it would be better to just uh, end it, uh, not not have, you know, a national government but we can be, associated military. But we can be against the military industrial complex. This is very different from saying you are against a national defense. Yeah. I mean, these are different things. People yeah. can be against the military industrial complex. They can be against the collusion between the government and um, uh, military contractors, those who are building weapons, those who are getting benefits from taxpayers, a lot of R&D tax money that goes into weapons development. Um, we can be against the proliferation of these weapons across the world, like is happening. You know, when we provide weapons to places like Saudi Arabia, you know, selling them weapons. We can be against all that stuff and still think the four percent of us, small percentage. This is a small group of people worldwide. Maybe we should band together to protect ourselves. It's not any different from a small community saying we want to have different rules and protect ourselves from other people. Like it's, it's the same concept, but you have to introduce scale as a concept. Like you don't say, well, because a one world government that has like all sorts of powers shouldn't exist that therefore the next step is, well, total anarchy. Like you could say that at the world level, there is no power other than, um, you know, you can meet together and yeah. you can discuss things, but and there's no – Not to perpetuate genocides or something Right, like that. that kind yeah. of thing. But there's actually no power over citizens of any country or anything like that. There's no power. There's no power to wage war. There's no – but the, the, the thing that the world governance is is just you meet together and you talk. That's it. And then at the federal level, it's something simple like, okay, we make sure that – we are protected against, you know, we're, we're a bunch of free people living in a bunch of communities here within this physical region. We're protecting ourselves against outsiders, the 96% who might attack the 4%. So we're just doing that. And then at the state level, you say, okay, there's a little more cohesion here. We're going to allow the state to do a few more things, but no more than that. And then at the lo as it gets closer, okay, now we're talking about my local community, my village or town or city or whatever. Okay, there's a little more that we might agree on. Um, and look, if I don't like it, it's easier for me to move out. I can just move from one city to another city. And then as yeah. you get to neighborhoods, it gets even higher. Like, okay, now you can have – you got to cut your grass at this level or whatever because – and you might say it's authoritarian, but okay, switch neighborhoods. Like – you know, it's just it's a pretty small community. If they tell you to cut your grass so high or, you know, don't leave your trash out on the lawn or whatever, you can understand why that's happening. So why um, why are libertarians often missing this idea of scale? Like it seems yeah. like it's missing from the discussion. It's like all or nothing. Like they imagine a one world government that is totally dominant or even a United States that is totally dominant. Like the options are only – a United States that controls everything or anarchy when you could say, Oh, well, United States that has these limited powers versus uh, a state that he has these powers and going down all the way to the individual level where the individual is obviously the most empowered and 
um, most independent. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the fundamental idea of the United States. And, you know, this idea of polycentric law is like what I think we should be striving for. It's the, um, you know, that is political decentralization. Um, this word decentralization Absolutely. is something that I, uh, you and I agree with, people in, in the Mises Caucus uh, agree with, but I think we sometimes use it in different ways uh, yes. because that is a way. And like the kind of paradoxical thing about it is, can you use a higher governmental authority, like a federal government to enable political decentralization? And that is kind of the entire uh, idea that the United States uh, is built on and like the, the concept of the Constitution, um, wh which is why I think it's still worth trying to push that if we can have a Supreme Court that, uh, you know, does devolve decision making down to the states and, and acts to uh, restrain administrative agencies and also intervene when local governments are violating individual rights that's that strikes me as an obvious win for libertarians and something that i don't think is worth giving up yet and i guess that is where the disagreement is is that some others think that we're it's it's too late um that's it's all a dream it's all a fantasy never going to happen all that's going to happen is the power is going to continue to as long as we have this executive uh, branch and as long as we have a central government, um, kind of the natural tendency of things is just to continue to centralize. Um, but I, I guess I just I don't agree. I think there's a lot of countervailing forces that are fighting against that, first and foremost being technology. It's just harder and harder for the government to control certain things. Um, and so... I'm hoping that, you know, you know, libertarian ideology fused with some of these technologies, uh, uh, cryptocurrency, encryption, um, you know, other uh, decentralizing technologies can actually force that kind of constitutional governance to happen because the government just has the federal government at some point just has to kind of throw up its hands and say, like, we can't intervene everywhere. We can't. Um, and, and also like the idea, you know, I brought up in my interview, um, some of the work of, you know, the 10th amendment center and like, uh, drug policy groups that just forged ahead and said, you know, we're going to start allowing people to buy marijuana medically and now recreationally, and we're going to decriminalize mushrooms and the federal government can keep it illegal, but they don't have the resources to do anything about it. I think that's also a good strategy and these could all work together. Um, I just, you know, am very skeptical of discarding any of the weapons in our arsenal, especially one as powerful as a pretty libertarian document like the Constitution. Yeah, and I agree with you that technology will uh, at some point overpower the federal government's ability to uh, constrain people. Like there is – there is not a way for the federal government to overcome, I think, things like Bitcoin and other decentralizing forces in the world. Now, 
it will try. And if it tries, like if there is some kind of conflict where it's <laughs> like the United States versus decentralization generally or individual rights on some kind of uh, massive and obvious scale. And I don't mean something like COVID where, yes, COVID, the policies were egregious. I think we can all agree on that. But there was um, some motivation in people's minds that seemed reasonable, at least for some period of time. Yeah. Like there was at least for some some period of time where people thought, okay, it's a new virus. We don't know what it is. Some of these measures make sense. Over time, I think a lot of people said, okay, we now understand it better. This is ridiculous. And uh, you have to admit also that the United States government pulled back over time. Now it's still – and so did my state government. For example, in the state of Michigan, the measures were quite egregious at first and then – uh, when our governor figured out how unpopular that was, she pulled back pretty quick and stopped doing the press conferences and all that stuff. So, so there's already a force pushing back against stuff like that. And that's even with something that maybe some people in the United States, maybe a lot of Democrats, for example, would say is more justifiable. But, um, but when it comes to something like, Hey, the federal government's now going to stop you from using uh, a cryptocurrency, or mm-hmm. the federal government's going to shut off your your money or your ability to do banking, uh, or the federal government's going to uh, conspire with major information technology companies to gather all your data. Like they're gonna, you know, work with Google or Amazon or whoever it might be to just collect all your data mm-hmm. or and censor it's go- you or censor you or whatever. I think there will be a natural pushback yeah. by the by the public, and there may come a time when you say, "Okay, this isn't working. Like this, this is totally out of control, and now there's a justification for the kind of revolution we experienced before." Yeah. Some ju- some justification for okay, we're just completely disbanding from this government. Like this is not this is totally yeah. legitimate. But we're not at that point, in my opinion. And I agree. And when we when I hear people say the Constitution is just a piece of paper, I want to remind people that that piece of paper has actually worked in many respects. Now it's it's not always been followed, but. If you compare the United States to the world on things like freedom of speech or guns or the kind of due process you'd get in a court, there's no comparison. I mean you're not going to find countries, especially of this magnitude, of this importance and scale, anywhere in the world with our types of protections. Even very small countries don't have these types of protections. I'm talking about countries with you know a couple million people that are more like cities. So, uh, and when you look at the prosperity of the United States, like just look at the um, the income in the United States compared to the, just the wealth, the wealth building, the prosperity. I think a lot of people are unaware that in the United States we make something like fifty percent more than people in Europe. And, you know, there are some countries where we don't make quite that much more, but there is a big difference in terms of prosperity, even compared to Canada or other places we, we do extremely well. So 
there are huge differences in prosperity and freedom. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that we believe in this piece of paper, the Constitution. That when the government wants to restrict our speech, they run into the First Amendment. They do run into uh, divided powers, like a Supreme Court that is, on some issues, more libertarian than the executive branch or the legislative branch. Uh, So I think those things have been good things for us. And I view this framework, if it's properly limited, as a protection for decentralization. Like you want to have your own community wherever you live in the United States and you want it to be able to make up its own rules and to be and for people to be free there. Well, then I think you probably want some kind of alliance with other like-minded communities where you say, we're going to work together to defend ourselves from 96% of the world that does not agree with us. You know, the United States is the only country in the world that has uh, an explicit protection for the right to keep and bear arms. It's the only country in our constitution, the only country in the world that explicitly protects the right to keep and bear arms without like any exceptions. There are a couple other countries that have constitutions that mention the right to keep and bear arms, but they'll say it's only for military purposes or whatever. They're like very explicit. We have no such thing in our constitution. So the 4% of us who live in the United States, we're allied on that stuff. And I would think that we'd want to work together to prevent the 96% of the world who don't agree with us, not to say that they all don't agree with us, but many of the people in the rest of the world do not agree with us on these things. When, when I see people on the internet and they hear about our First Amendment laws, you know, our, our freedom of speech, our protections, how things are protected in the United States, there are people in Europe who are horrified. What? You guys are allowed to say um, things that are considered hateful? Like, how is that? They don't share our values on these things. So, heck yeah, I want to team up with the 4% of the world that does share my values largely on these things and defend myself against the other people who don't share our values. So I just see that, I see federalism as a way to protect uh, our decentralization. Well, yeah, and our rights. It, it raises the question of, well, if you're taking away those protections, like what exactly is it that you are wanting local and state governments to be able to do that they can't do now under the Constitution? Is it the violate the First Amendment, violate the Second, make you quarter soldiers, uh, not have due process, <laughs> um, you know, go through the amendments? Like what uh, is it, you know, then I guess you could get into you know, the the jurisprudence that the federal government has made in terms of regulating businesses, maybe some of that would be a win for liberty if states uh, could, like, revise their labor laws in some way. But overall, I mean, um, is it erecting barriers between states, either for people or goods crossing? Um, None of this seems like it would advance liberty. Um, And so that's why, like, 
going after the Supreme Court in particular is a little bit uh, puzzling and, and alarming to me. And I would say also, and this is something you've talked about, the humility is really central to libertarianism as a concept. Um, this idea that we can rationally construct some kind of new order that is going to be far superior to this essentially miracle that has arisen, I think, is, um, is lacking in humility. Like, I agree. Like I, I, I think where we got the where we got to this this place we've gotten to is in many ways a miracle, and it's the product of many things in history. And in some ways, it was an accident. It was an accident that we got to this point. But we got here, and it's pretty good. That's not to say, and I think you would agree, that's not to say there can't be better. There can be better. But when you look at world history, this is the best it's gotten. I think we're living in the freest country in the world at the most prosperous time in human history. It hasn't gotten better than this, despite all the bad things that are going on. And um, and so I, I do have, like you do, the hesitation, the skepticism, the cautiousness about, well, let's just – disband this whole thing and forget about it. If we get to the point where it gets really bad, I'm with all those people who say, you know, we fight for individual rights against a tyrannical government or whatever. I'm with all those people. Yeah. But I don't I don't think we're at that point. Yeah, I mean that that's how I kind of left it when I was talking with Dave. I said, you know, I I can see the value of like leaving this on the table as an option if things get really bad. Um, I'm just not really ready to pick it up. Just the same way that you know that that is the purpose of the Second Amendment is to for the citizens to have arms in case things get really bad. We just never ever want to see that happen, um, and I don't think we're in a place right now where uh, I want that, you know, militias need to start taking to the streets and, um, you know, taking down the tyrants. So a couple of things I want to talk to you before we get going, which mm -hmm. is Andrew Yang put together this forward party uh -huh. and they recently announced they're merging with some other groups. What do you think about this sort of effort and um, do you think it's something – I mean I don't know how much you've s spent time looking at it, but do you think it's something that can rival like the Libertarian Party or is the audience very different and and so it's sort of irrelevant to what the Libertarian Party is doing? I haven't looked in detail at it. I mean I know what Andrew Yang is all about, uh, UBI, and basically he's um, a technocrat uh, that – um, you know, rejects some of the toxic identity politics of the left, which I think makes him more appealing to centrists. Um, so if that is what the forward party is about, um, I'm not all that interested because uh, I, I think he's kind of just, um, you know, repackaging progressivism to be a little bit more palatable and I'm not a progressive. Um, it might be something that, could be a you know a positive influence on some of the more 
toxic aspects of the Democratic Party. You know, that that's one role of third parties is to kind of try to influence the major parties. So, you know, maybe maybe that's some good that could come out of it. Out of it. But, um, you know, Andrew Yang kind of had his moment uh, in, I, I guess it was 2020, 2020 election. Um, but he, I don't know, things, I haven't really seen, his political career hasn't exactly, you know, t- taken off after that. So I, I, I wouldn't put too much uh, stock in it. But again, I haven't looked deeply into the forward party. Yeah, I think the the positive that comes out of it is this idea of bringing back some civility into politics. Mm-hmm. I think that stuff is important um, in the sense that when you have a society where people don't really trust each other, where we're always fighting and angry, I do not think that is conducive to liberty. I think you are in many respects um, stronger, even with all sorts of ideological disagreements you might have with anyone like Andrew Yang or anyone else. Having a, a culture, a society where you disagree respectfully, where you talk about things, and you try to persuade people. So, yeah, I've, I have always appreciated that about uh, Yang. Um, you know, he's I've heard him on the, the kind of podcast circuit and he's willing to engage with all sorts of people um, in an apparent good faith manner. And um, I think that that goes a long way, especially for a politician where you kind of have a, a no offense, pretty low bar for that. So one last thing, what is the most interesting thing you've seen as a video producer? And I don't know. This is a tough question. I, I hate when people ask me, like, what is the number one thing or, you know, yeah. it, it's always a tough one to answer uh, because you don't want to think later, oh, there was this other thing that was actually more interesting. Yeah. But but you've seen a lot of things, right? Like you've been in a lot of places. You've seen a lot of things. Has there anything been anything that shocked you or maybe shook you or changed your mind about something? Um, I mean, one of the most intense, ex- I'll give you two, and they were both, um, you know, over overseas type of things. One was being in uh, Guatemala, riding. There are these guys called the Bomberos, and they are volunteer um, ambulance drivers and uh, Guatemala City is one of the most violent places on earth and so I did a ride along with them that was just like extremely harrowing for me and I saw you know a gunshot victim and uh, it just like really that I would say it shook me because I, I you know had to I was like just sitting there filming that and kind of like detached from it and everything but then, like, the really weird thing about it was, like, thinking, like, this was just another night for these guys. Um, so, like, just imagining, like, that is your life and you're, like, volunteering to do that um, was pretty uh, – it's just amazing to encounter human beings like that. And then also, you know, it, to kind of bring it back to this, it's, like, it makes you appreciate – you know, the level of order that you do have here, as bad as um, things have gotten in some of the cities in the U.S., it's still nothing on that level. And and things can slip away if if you take um, certain institutions or like social relations 
for granted. So that was one. Um, and then another very memorable moment for me was going to Hong Kong amidst their um, pro-democracy protests and um, like going to a soccer game where they were kind of all just singing the Hong Kong uh, national anthem, which had just been made up because uh, Hong Kong doesn't ha- is not a technically a country, um, but some activists had come up with that and seeing like that just exemplified the kind of like the spirit of that movement was very like creative um, and uh, they would have these spun, you know, they would all coordinate on telegram and do these kind of like pop up, like spectacular type of um, protests that are, uh, they would go on top of like this, this, this lion rock mountain in Hong Kong with, with the lights and, and uh, just uh, they, they were, you know, their, their whole uh, motto was the, the Bruce Lee be like water. So they want to be very fluid and so just seeing that kind of social movement um, emerge uh, and then, you know, now knowing what has happened to Hong Kong, it's so like bittersweet thinking about it. Um, but those are a couple of things that, that come to mind for me. Yeah. Well, those are reminders of how good we have it at times, right? I mean, that's yeah. just like um, when yeah, you travel. Also a, also a reminder in the Hong Kong um, scenario of how quickly it can slip. Like, yeah, um, you I've know, been to Hong um, Kong. Yeah, I've been to Hong Kong a couple of times, and and now, yeah. like, you know, I mean, for so long it was considered, uh, you know, one of the beacons of freedom in the world, and now they their their liberties are just severely curtailed. Uh, lots of dissidents are just sitting in jail now. Um, people have. My under- I haven't been back there, but just from talking to some people there, you know, the mood is just kind of like, you know, throwing your hands up and um, it, it's kind of over. So um, that is the argument for staying vigilant and, uh, you know, keeping these tools or weapons or what have you at, at hand to uh, to be ready uh, if if things do start taking a turn. Yeah. Well, Zach, thanks for doing this. Uh, for those listening, you can find him on Twitter at at the abridged Zach. What's uh, yeah? Well, how did you come up with that handle? <laughs> I just say it was just a, a you know I I always wish I had just like picked my name because now it's like oh Twitter is actually is like your a, name too long? Your, is your uh, name too Twitter? long for Twitter? I couldn't do my full name. I'd have to just be like my initial and last name or something. Uh, but yeah. It, it uh, was one of those things I just picked a long time ago because it's like you know it's my abridged thoughts. Um, maybe your I'm name's still available. Maybe your name's still available, or someone else take it. Uh, it might be available, but I think I will lose my coveted blue check if I uh, change. Oh, it. that's so, true. Yeah. 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 So um, yeah, gotta hold on to that, that like a... uh, so that people can uh, call me a blue check and get really mad. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, at the abridged Zach, um, thanks for thanks for being on, and I hope me. I hope people will check out um, the stuff you do on Reason, um, like putting together those Libertarian Party convention videos. That was fantastic, and probably a, probably a very difficult job too, by the way. Uh, to, yeah. So really. you don't because you're worried about if upsetting 
any number of people and you want to present it in the right context. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of politics involved, but um, I, I'm very happy with how they came out. And um, I think uh, it was they were fairly well received and people on all sides of it have basically told me that they perceived it as pretty fair. So that's uh, that's that's what I aim. That's what we aim for. Uh, Nick is also in the room. He was uh, hosting. Uh, he was, you know, the on air talent and we had a whole team editing it. So it was a real uh, team effort putting those together. And I'm uh, I'm really pleased with how they came out. Yeah, well, thanks for what you do, and I'm sure we'll catch up soon. And thanks to everyone listening. Take care. Thanks, Justin. Bye. Yep. Bye.